0: How do you apologize for a business mistake in Japan?
1: When something goes wrong, even though you don't know whose fault it is, Japanese companies tend to say, I'm sorry for inconveniencing you, and they bow very deeply. That is the way it's expected in Japanese culture. But if you do the same thing in the Western environment, they might take it wrong sometimes they say well we've had good relationship in the past 10 years blah 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 so what is your answer do you think we can make it or not and the japanese person is just shocked
2: if your product is right does it matter where it's made if you have a product that has all the right stuff people will buy it what's
0: the
3: key to success in international business if you don't have the ability to talk with people to interact with people to be able to motivate people to be able to work in conjunction with them no technology will be able to save you This is the Language of Business,
0: a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at the challenges of international business development. Here's our host, Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Our first guest is Ms. Kumi Inoue,
4: CEO of a Tokyo-based company, Here and Now, Incorporated. Her firm provides global business communication seminars and training, including business English language classes for their primarily Japanese customer base, but is also equally involved in conference and business interpreting and translation services. It's the second portion of their business which requires regular international sales development inoue gozaimasu. Welcome to our show. How do you market and advertise your company to help your Japanese clients expand internationally outside of Japan?
1: First of all, I'm very impressed with your Japanese. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> actually, there are many, many Japanese companies as well as Japanese government who are keen on the so-called globalization. Speak English. That's what they keep saying. Excellent. Everyone is aware of the need for globalization. But actually, what is globalization and what it takes to globalize, that Is something that not everyone is well aware of. Before I started my company in 2007, I have been doing much interpreting. So I use my contacts and I communicate to them that I'm there to actually help them do globalize and actually produce the outcome that they want for their businesses. My marketing and advertisement is actually based on the references and contacts that I have been fortunately receiving and interviewing my clients and customers and defining and redefining what they really want to accomplish, the outcome they want. Would you prefer
4: a smaller customer base of Japanese companies which generate more revenue per client or the opposite where you're supporting
1: multiple smaller clients? My value proposition is based on leveraging my expertise, my personal expertise as a global communicator, a professor, teaching and doing at the same time over the decades. So that's what I can propose. So that means that I have to be there for my clients and do the actual training and seminars. And also I have the extensive networks of people, talented people that I can also leverage. However, each of my client wants me there. So that means I only can serve a limited number of clientele.
4: You have a very impressive background of all of the different skills that you have. What do you think is your best area of expertise?
1: My best area of expertise is to actually share the philosophy of globalization and actually do it and make a difference in the world. I define globalization to be accommodating diversity and inclusion. And actually, what I mean by that is to cherish the diversity of people. And now Japan, as well as other countries, are rapidly aging. Diversity of people better. That's part of my uh, value proposition. How do we communicate to them? How do we provide them products and services that can better serve the elderly people and people of different ethnic backgrounds and cultural backgrounds? And how do we include them so we can make a better society and uh, make a better world? And that's what I can help them with.
4: That's very interesting. How have you seen, though, Japanese companies seek to expand outside of Japan over the past few years? And are these changes is rooted in technological innovation, as you indicated, diversity or a different cultural approach?
1: Technological innovation. They have been designing new products and new services, but at the same time, it has to be combined with a unique value proposition, which is rooted in Japanese culture. And I believe that has been actually demonstrated on 3.11, 2011, the earthquake. And everyone in the world was impressed with the Japanese resilience and also the spirit of helping each other. So that's the strength of Japanese people. The companies that have been successful have been able to leverage both their technological innovation and such cultural assets and have been able to successfully market them so that they can communicate those qualities to the world.
4: I'm Greg Stoller in the studio. We have Kumi Inoue, who is a Japanese entrepreneur and is the CEO of Here and Now Incorporated. Inoue-san, Japan is in the midst of some exciting positive changes from the prime minister on down. Do you think that most Japanese people continue to be excited about Prime Minister Abe's changes?
1: We are still wait and see kind of mode as far as Prime Minister Abe is concerned. Mm -hmm. Everyone is excited to see someone at least trying to make a difference. And every day we see a new move and a new context that he's been making. So at least I think he's taking actions. And that is positively communicated because Japanese people have often lacked taking proactive actions.
4: Dealing with Japan as I have for over 25 years, everyone focuses on Ningen Kanke or supporting right. the relationship. Most Westerners don't realize the importance of this and they focus more on immediate profitability. How do you educate your clientele without offending them?
1: Relationship matters. That's what I educate everyone, Japanese and non Japanese, and I believe that is true all over the world. However, I have to at the same time educate the Japanese clients that even though relationship matters and the trust, really is everything at the end of the day. The way that business is carried out sometimes involves a lot of legal matters and also the promises and commitments. Often they have to be careful about their mannerism. For instance, when something goes wrong, even though you don't know whose fault it is, Japanese companies tend to say, I'm sorry for inconveniencing you, and they bow very deeply. Because that is the way it's expected in Japanese culture that is to apologize to the fact that people are troubled, even though you may not be responsible for it. But if you do the same thing in the Western environment, they might take it wrong, they might think that's the admission of um, Of guilt right so that's why I have to advise Japanese companies that they can express their feelings and their their compassion towards uh, what has happened and the fact that people are troubled and they can say it is quite regrettable and we're doing everything to investigate the matter but they should not say I apologize or I'm sorry for inconveniencing you because that could miscommunicate sometimes non-Japanese people when they come they might insist on on communicating their way, and they might say, do you think our business can continue? Is there a good chance? Yes or no? And the Japanese people, their way of responding is often by explaining the background. Well, we've had good relationship in the past 10 years, blah, blah, blah. And then, then sometimes they intervene and say, so what is your answer? Do you think we can make it or not? And the Japanese person is just shocked, aback, because the logic is different. They have to first of all say, well, it is very difficult to answer that. But let me first of all explain the background. Maybe if they do that, the uh, uh, non-Japanese client might be a little bit more patient. But when it comes to advising non-Japanese, I would say that be a good listener and be patient (laughs) and let the Japanese speak. (laughs) And maybe even though they start off from a long explanation as to the background history, but they're going to get there. And then they would say, because of this, well, I think we might have a chance of going forward. But if the counterpart does not listen to the end, he might uh, actually lose the opportunity.
4: Excellent. Thank you,
1: Inoue-san.
0: Greg Stoller with Kuni Inoue, Japanese Marketing Consultant. Coming up, the key to success in international sales. But first, if your product is right, does it matter where it's made? as the language of business continues. Back to Greg Steller. Bob Maslin
4: comes from an impressive sales background, developed and honed over three decades. On top of everything else, he is nearly a single-digit handicap golfer. Bob, welcome to the language of business. You're very kind, Greg, very kind. (laughs) It is so much easier and cheaper to communicate with international contacts today, but yet so many people still seem wedded to regular in-person meetings. Why is this the case?
2: There's always been a feeling that you need to look someone in the eye and, first of all, find out what their business is. Sometimes you meet people from international places, and they're working out of a closet. I mean, you really have to see that there's some substance behind it. But more important is to set a goal with deadlines for sampling, production, delivery. These are the types of basic building blocks. Americans are very impatient if we order something we want it immediately and we can't worry about holidays and we can't worry about various other items that come across in the business world so the key is to listen to what products people want to have give them a clear time frame of when they can manufacture it when they can put it on a boat and deliver it and then we're happy. But in-person
4: meetings can only still take place periodically. How do you effectively and positively support this interaction between these trips?
2: The best thing to do is to accumulate a variety of issues that you want to discuss, be they delivery, quality new products. When I first went to Japan, it was very interesting that there were no women in any of the offices. I mean, that's not the case in America, so you had to sort of sort out what the local customs were, but the bottom line is that you need to see what they have and then how they can help you. From a creative standpoint, I think a lot of the companies can do more than what they're doing. I think from a development of product, color, styling, it's fascinating in Japan right now there's a whole artisanal movement going on with American culture. They're bringing out Levi's and old, in the home furnishings market where I compete, quality is key, but also you have to have fine eye for color, a fine eye for detail, and those are the items that you don't want corners cut, you want the full product being manufactured
4: so you keep mentioning japan which is quite apropos since Mm -hmm. our first guest is from japan and mentioned that maintaining face and supporting the relationship are often as important as the business transaction itself in your career most of your business has been outside of asia however Mm -hmm. so without these cultural norms how do you determine whether you're really
2: able to trust somebody The proof is in the delivery, the proof is in the quality of the product. Everyone is very tolerant of the difficulty of transportation, although it's gotten a lot better. But quite frankly, if you've ordered something and it doesn't come in right, many people don't want to take responsibility for it, and then you run into some problems. But the bottom line is the good suppliers are people who spend the time creating the product, stand behind it, and make it work from there
4: we're talking about international sales management with Bob Maslin, a seasoned business executive. Traditional business wisdom, Bob, supports customer diversity to avoid succumbing to the 80-20 rule but supporting so many different international customer relationships could become expensive and impractical. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Particularly in in the United States, we have a very value-oriented society. I mean, you look at a Walmart, and yet in the same market that Walmart competes in, you have Tiffany and higher-end goods. That little niche, that little area of the high-end is where I like to be, but you still have to have value along with the quality that goes with it. As a manufacturer, either in China or or in Japan or Korea, if you have a product that has all the right stuff, people will buy it. So you have to have the trust in the product that it's going to stand up to everything. And there's always a learning curve. There's always the first few orders don't quite come in on time. Chinese New Year. There's things that happen in the process that make it difficult but the important thing is that the sample that someone sees that's what they're gonna get. Anything endemic to doing business in the UK that you've picked up over the years? It's interesting when I first started out in business I I sold clothing down on Newberry Street. The British We had these beautiful rugby shirts. The only problem was we wanted them in December for Christmas, and they showed up in July. And that learning curve has since been taken care of. The British goods, again, they are natural fibers. Sheep have to grow. Cotton has to be brought in. But in general, they have a very high quality of, in the textile area, a very high quality of production in that area.
4: Unfortunately, if things don't go well, in the U.S., contract, non-renewal, and termination are relatively straightforward affairs, as most industries have multiple competitors. The landscape internationally, as I'm sure you well know, is often quite different, where there are fewer suppliers in the same industry or limited countries to source from. How do you know when it's time to make a change from one supplier to another?
2: Well, it's very interesting you say that, Greg, because at, at one time in the carpet industry, which is one that I know pretty well. There were probably 40 or 50 fine old line suppliers, and then they realized you could make carpet very inexpensively with a Singer sewing machine, and that immediately made America the low-cost producer of the world. Since that day, in the fine woven quality goods, places have been shutting down left and right. Where there once were 30 or 40 people making a type of weave, they're down to four or five. So in some ways, the manufacturer in today's world has a very strong position as long as they have the right vendor to uh, present their product to market.
4: So as a manufacturer's representative you're uniquely positioned between the factory and the customer. In a pinch domestically you could always bring a factory executive to the job site or to your office in order to solve a problem but internationally this would probably be unrealistic unless it's a huge error or something gone wrong, how do you handle disgruntled customers
2: then on an everyday basis? Well, first I answer the phone and you try to go out and assess the situation, uh, find out what the demands of the customer are, I mean if they can live with it with an allowance or if they need it replaced, we, we want to keep the lawyers out of this. And generally, if we need to, we can air freight. They're very good air freight situations to get the correct product to market. And right now with one of the companies I'm working with, it's going through that growing pain until they can get inventory into the states. And I'm happy to report they're doing much better now. So the aggravation factor is much less than it was earlier in their process.
4: With your late-night phone calls and Harry negotiations with suppliers and customers, do you ever get any chance to play golf?
2: I do. In fact, one of the best things that ever happened, or maybe the worst thing, I'm not sure, is when I was in Detroit working on a joint venture with a Japanese company, I I got a hole-in-one. And always they ask you how bad was the shot. It was pretty bad. I (laughs) bounced off a hill, ran across the green, but it was a very long night. Apparently that's almost like winning the lottery and a lot of other things, so it was a very late night. For many years I was introduced as the man with the hole-in-one. So, great. Haven't had one since, but... Thank you, Bob. Okay. Bob Maslin on being an international sales representative.
0: Coming up, the key to international success in business on the language of business. Our sponsor is Swap-Ons. Want to experience something truly unique on the other side of your phone? Swap-Ons. Personalize your phone case like never before. Pick your case model and color. Sleek design. Anti-slip sides. Drop test protection past and exceeded. Choose your swaps. There are thousands of great designs, sports, travel, nature, and more. Or create your own swaps. Upload your pics or your business logo. Add custom frames. Swap-ons. They start an infinite swap for you. Live it and love it. Swap it. Swapons.com. Once again, here's Greg Stalin.
4: Thanks, Don. Excusing the pun, Alan Lunder is putting his heart and soul into his latest shoe company, Black Diamond Boots. But he probably doesn't have a choice. He's building a new business in the playing for keeps mentality of operating in mainland China. He knows the industry intimately from several associated family businesses. But even with this wealth of experience, almost every time I speak with him he's either returning from a trip, planning the next one, or resolving the crisis. To most of us, late nights, thin margins, and governmental policy are intriguing stories on websites or robust debates in a business school classroom. But for Alan, they're the cold shower reality of his daily grinds. Alan, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. So you need to make these trips for a number of different reasons, but air travel and hotel stays aren't cheap. Where do you draw the line between late-night telephone calls versus in-person meetings?
3: We always believe in having personal relationships, and the best way to be able to communicate is face-to-face. That's the purpose, and that's the reason for going to Asia on a regular basis, to be able to maintain good relationships just as you would locally. But with technology today, between text, email, Skype, Rebtel, all the other technologies, those keep us busy during the day, but nothing beats face-to-face communication and relationships, because our business is built on relationships.
4: How many trips a year do you have to take in order to meet those face-to-face executives?
3: Between 8 to 10 trips to Asia a year. Okay. How much of
4: your time is spent on business development here in the United States versus quality control overseas in mainland China?
3: The portion of our business in the U.S. is primarily focused on maintaining a business relationship with each of our customers. A lot of the times that we spend in the United States are on product development, going through merchandising assortments for our customers, working with them, understanding what their needs are, what their market needs are, what the positioning of competitors sets, but the majority of the business is spent in Asia primarily working on actually executing the product. If it's a new order on spec, or a completely brand new
4: customer account or an original stylistic development you'd hope to sell to your existing customers, do you have a set of benchmarks you use to evaluate whether it will be worth the effort or whether your suppliers have met or exceeded the bar in terms of quality?
3: We organize a timeline, an initial timeline. That drives everything that we do, every decision that we make, every decision that our customer needs to make. We have a variety of different customers who meet a lot of different categories, industrial categories, whether it be golf, bowling, fishing, and they all have different timelines based on the seasonality of their market okay
4: for those customers
3: how do you gauge whether a premium pricing strategy with higher margins
4: but less volume or a lower priced mass-market approach is going to be the best tack
3: that's really driven by our customers and understanding what their product line is where it fits in the marketplace where their broader branded strategy is as a total company and we try to align ourselves from a footwear standpoint into their broader branded strategy and then based on that really it's driven by what the market will bear so if their market positioning is a certain price point, we need to work backwards from there, which also dictates which factory partner that we'll and work with. And what types of quality
4: you're looking for and correct. what your production lead time will be and the mass production you're going to order, et cetera.
3: Correct. We're relentless on quality. We don't differentiate a quality standard based on price. As far as we're concerned, our organization has to execute the product regardless of what the price well, point the price is. What
4: price point is going to be quality to needs your to your customers be here or the end user correct. who might be buying it, et cetera. Correct. I'm Greg Stoller. We're talking about developing an international boot business with Alan Lunder of Black Diamond Boots. So much time is spent ensuring that products are thoughtfully manufactured, and of course you want to protect the quality of the respective brands. At moderate price points, do you think the average U.S. consumer is able to discern or care about quality?
3: That's a good question because at the end of the day, what I've learned is that Americans vote with their wallet. That's really what drives our business. Based on what's going on in American retail, that really drives what the requirements are on a manufacturing base. So it's not as simple as saying, Product is made cheaply in China or cheaper than it was made in other areas. The reality is that the consumer drives the business. As we like to say, if dogs got to like the dog food. And if we're not making products or our customers aren't making products that meet the demands of their customers, then we need to find an area to be able to do it. The stress today in the marketplace is that we've had collectively, as an American consumer, have had a good run for about 20 years with regard to lower wages and also the infrastructure. Structure being built in Asia to be able to support the American sure. consumer. Several
4: years ago, there was a catchphrase that was "yong gong lang xing rong bu which means that to say China is the world's factory is not at all an understatement. However, with Chinese wages increasing as much as they have in the past five years and other countries quietly following suit, do you still believe Asia will
3: continue as the world's manufacturing hub? They will probably continue to be a majority percentage of of the hub purely by infrastructure. If you look at what China's done similar to the United States in terms of building an infrastructure to be able to support an economy such as that, other countries that we don't necessarily look at it as Asia versus the rest. We look at the whole world, and we try to figure out where's the appropriate place to manufacture and source the product from. But obviously, China being a leader, especially in the footwear business, they have approximately 80% of footwear manufactured for the U.S. market in China.
4: What would it take for you to begin sourcing from the U.S. or even NAFTA geographies, or do we still have a ways to go, at least in this country, in terms of narrowing the wage gap?
3: We used to be a domestic manufacturer and I used to work in a business that was a domestic manufacturer. Part of the issue in the United States is that we've lost the infrastructure. So even if you would like to do certain products, it's not having the availability of an infrastructure, whether it's tanneries, whether it's sole ma- manufacturers. From our perspective, we don't necessarily look at it purely as U.S. versus China, we look at it as... If we need product to be made at a certain price point, a certain customer, we try to find the best avenue for that. The last 20 years, it's primarily been China as it's grown, but we've gone from Korea to Taiwan to China to Indonesia, and that's really where the infrastructure has gone. We'd love to be able to source product from North America. Primarily, it's got to be a good fit from a product standpoint, it's got to be a good fit from an infrastructure standpoint, and at the end of the day it needs to be a good fit for what the end consumer is going to purchase. Despite
4: the success of the Dow and the Nasdaq, I still don't see too many companies able to even modestly raise their prices. If manufacturing costs are increasing but prices are staying the same, the middleman, unfortunately executives like you, have some
3: difficult choices to make. The primary driver is the merchandising matrix at American retail. So as much as we would like to be able to establish pricing, that's really driven by the market. It's driven by the brands that we work with and ultimately from a retailer perspective, We try to work within that matrix. That matrix is unyielding. It's ultimately driven by what the consumer is willing to pay, what the perception of the value. In the last 20 years it's been a pretty good deal for the American consumer.
4: What do you think are the three key success factors of
3: your business? Personal relationships, personal relationships and good communication. If you don't have the ability to be able to talk with people, to interact with people, to be able to motivate people, to be able to work in conjunction with them, it's impossible regardless of the technology. As I said before, we work on Skype, email, text. We have the greatest tools we have ever had in the history of business. But if you can't meet with people, you can't talk with people, you can't have resolutions with people and work through your business, no technology will be able to save you. Very cool stuff. Thanks, Alan. Thank you.
4: Lunder, founder of black diamond boots on being an international
0: entrepreneur thanks greg and that's our episode this week you can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes we publish a new episode every tuesday if you subscribe and leave a rating on apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help thank you Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of excellentwriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to the Language of Business.